Howdy y'all, welcome to Urbane Cowboys. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. I'm flying solo this week. Our intrepid co-host Doug is uh, off doing Doug things. Today we have with us as our guest, Samo Buya, who is the founder of Bismarck Analysis, a very interesting commentator and thinker about uh, current events and world events. So Samo, Welcome to the program. Uh, it's good to be here with you. Why don't you, so just to start, if you could just uh, tell our listeners a little bit about your uh, your background and, and what you do um, at, uh, w- w- you know, what is Bismarck analysis, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, for the last 10 years, I've been uh, thinking about society and have undertook many historical investigations, including, you know, um, various research into disparate fields, everything from uh, archaeology to uh, how large organizations make decisions. And sort of the guiding star in this process, which really was a a quest to try to, you know, understand human history on a deep level, um, as a guiding star was this sort of idea that human nature has certain constancies, right? While technologies might change and in fact can transform us to very significant degrees, um, you know, while uh, ideologies can change, religions can change, there are some commonalities across human structure. So it's possible to both learn something by, uh, you know, looking at how the pharaohs handled their bureaucracy about the modern day, as it is possible to learn something about the ancient past by looking at a modern organization. Um, This was obviously very, very theoretical work. I have a number of historical articles that uh, your listeners can find. Uh, All of my essays and articles and papers are collected on samoburia.com slash essays. Uh, So they can go dig into those, uh, some interesting topics there. However, about, you know, four or so years ago, um, actually five years, it's in 2017, I realized that some of these studies, I think, could just be applied directly to the economy, hopefully in a way that's, uh, you know, economically productive or in a way that could, uh, you know, possibly even help governments or philanthropists. So the idea came for Bismarck analysis. Before that, I had worked at various research nonprofits. Um, I envisioned it as a as a sort of for-profit consulting firm. I intended it to stay relatively small, but basically have really this, this, this team of people with diverse views who, however, would know how to argue with each other because I think the real um, uh, bane, the real bane of social sciences is kind of the confirmation bias where people see what they want to see and they don't know what they don't know. So sort of the unknown unknowns and wishful thinking together sort of conspire to always create these very ideological echo chambers. And argument today is uh, almost a synonym for fighting, but I think that there's a very much a, a, a living, hopefully, art of coming to speak to someone you deeply disagree with and gleaning insight from the other person's positions, even if you don't end up changing their mind, and even if it doesn't make for a good performance uh, for an audience. Um, You know, unfortunately, I feel 
sort of Twitter is currently the best online space we have for debate, but Twitter basically is almost a gladiatorial ring where you are rewarded for entertaining the audience rather than for gleaning insight from the position of uh, someone you might disagree with. Further, I you know think that having a perspective on a society that's very different from your own often you know can help you uh, figure things out. So from 2017 onward, the company's developed quite a bit. Um, it's named Bismarck because uh, I was a big fan of the of the historical figure uh, Otto von Bismarck, who I think invents essentially the modern state, the modern political compromise. And, uh, you know, was a great statesman, worked in many different domains, everything from foreign policy to social policy, um, you know, very successful, but also came to, over time, acquire this kind of reputation for realism. So my thinking has been over the last few years that insofar as the company plays also a positive role for the general public, uh, we will, as far as we can, release some of these reports, some of these case studies, uh, some of these recommendations that originally are developed for paying clients to the general public with the hope that even uh, this kind of dispassionate non-advocacy analysis finds some use out there. Um, I really think that if we were to more deeply study society, the the place we all obviously spent all of our lives in. Um, And I think if we as a society overall engaged in more constructive self-reflection, more intentional reverse engineering of the different social technologies that surround us, you know, I think that uh, such a culture would be much more capable of tackling some of the challenges that we face. Okay. So, uh, my impression, and I, I have followed, um, I have followed your your work or whatever for a number of years, uh, not always in depth, but uh, I associate you with two kind of uh, big ideas or concepts or theories. One is the uh, the great founders theory, uh, and and then there's another one that we can we can get to in a minute, but. Maybe we can talk a little bit. What what is the what is the great founders theory or great founders? You know what 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 is this idea? Great founder theory could be considered a type of great man history. What is great man history? It is the view that history is made by sort of the pivotal decisions of exceptional individuals. Right, that these people's achievements come to shape history, the great artists, the great scientists, the great general, and so on. Great founder disagrees with this older school um, of history. You know, great founder, uh, great man history was very much the default and sort of popular in the 19th century, but it over time came to be replaced by a sort of view where society is shaped by forces and trends that are fundamentally impersonal. I would basically take on board a lot of these developments over the last 150 years of social science. And I would say, yes, definitely. Uh, Trends, forces, uh, you know, sort of widespread distributed belief systems, um, economic fundamentals, even, you know, sort of the fundamental pressures of our material technology reshaping our society in its own way. 
I think these all are just very much influential. They matter. But I think that there is still room for agency in history. I don't really think that there are that many meaningful decisions that people can make about sort of the course of human history due to a fortuitous circumstance. However, I think that there are periods of great social technology innovation where completely new modes of uh, doing politics, completely new modes of uh, religious life, uh, social norms, laws, uh, completely new organizations arise, right? Institutions that sometimes last for hundreds or even thousands of years. It's good to remember that the University of Oxford has been in existence for longer uh, than the rise and fall of Aztec civilization. So nearly a thousand years, right? And then, you know, depending on how you date the Catholic Church, it's been around for about 2000. And around the world, there are many monasteries that are many hundreds of years old, though I would argue, of course, that monasteries, uh, any individual monastery has shaped the world less than, uh, you know, the Catholic Church or uh, the University of Oxford or, uh, you know, the imperial family of Japan. So these very long-lived institutions come into existence with particular individuals or very small groups of people, setting them up, bringing them into existence, and then they live a life in the ecosystem of human institutions for centuries, millennia, exerting a force on society overall. In a way, I said any individual monastery, for example, might not have a big impact on society. However, monasticism has a very big impact on society. So easily, a founder of a monastic order could come to be a great founder. Am I saying that every person that sort of, you know, creates a, you know, a company today or a country 400 years ago, am I saying that any of these is uh, this kind of history-shaping great founder? No, um, I actually wouldn't say that. I essentially define great founders as those who really can impact history on the truly civilizational level. So if I were to give a few interesting examples, uh, I would probably give, uh, you know, let's say a more martial political example, which would probably be uh, Charlemagne, where I think Charlemagne actually weaves together the threads of the remnant of uh, sort of the Roman state or the organized religion of the Roman state and these, you know, very barbarous, uh, essentially Germanic peoples ruling over uh, a somewhat Latinized, Latinized Gallic uh, underclass. And that sort of brings into existence feudalism, as we might think of it, this kind of division between state and church, as we might think of it, brings a revival of Latin and Roman law uh, in addition to sort of the spread of um, the Catholic Church itself. And it, you know, sets Western civilization on this path that it's been on uh, for basically a thousand and a half years. On the completely other side of the Eurasian landmass, and a very different example, I would say that Confucius, not through personal success, but through the success of the school of thinkers that he directly founded, right? His students, 
uh, were basically trained by Confucius to become advisors to rulers and to um, reform what had been a hereditary system of nobility into a meritocratic and, at least in theory, humane uh, system of merit-based bureaucracy that respected sort of the ancient tradition of the Zhao dynasty and so on, or at least what it believed to be that tradition. So Confucian philosophy as such has arisen numerous times in the history of China over the last 2,000 years. And this change, right, this, this sort of introducing a particular school of thought, finding a good socioeconomic niche for it, for it, that of basically court advisors, giving it a set of ethics. Yes, in fact, ethics can be, you know, not just uh, something that makes us behave, uh, behave as better human beings. It's also something that can make groups of people much more effective. It gave them the tools to be a persistent factor in the courts of Chinese society, right? And, and Chinese imperial society was surprisingly centralized. So in a way, the Confucian theory uh, that, you know, kind of reform starts nearby and radiates outward proved very much true where changes that were at first these weird affectations of these uh, weird scholars at court eventually radiated out and came to define much of Chinese culture and much of Chinese civilization, but also impacted the political balance of power within China on a very, very profound level. These might seem to be like relatively small shoves from each of these, both you know Charlemagne and Confucius, but they are ones that multiplied over time, not diminished, and the institutions they planted and the descendants and copies of these institutions, together with the social technologies that were introduced, uh, these both came to be very much civilization-defining. And I don't think either of them really is replaceable. I, you know, I think in the absence of uh, Charlemagne, not only would the politics of what today would become France and Germany be very different, I think the eventual social compact might be extremely different as well. We might have seen uh, very much tribal or clannish societies rather than feudal societies that were eventually set on the track to building these type of early modern states come to dominance. And were it not for the Confucian perspective in China, we might have seen a very different philosophy, say the legalist philosophy, or perhaps even a reversion to hereditary rule at all levels of government, not just with the imperial family, produce a, a very different China. Is great founders, are they something that can only be really identified in retrospect and, uh, you know, only after like hundreds of years or however long it, it, it takes for, you know, the, the thing to play out? Or is it something that uh, you can kind of at least to some degree say, uh, you know, looking forward, this person or group, uh, you know, is, is potentially a great founder. This is not, uh, are there criteria like that that you might apply? Well, I think that there are a number of prerequisites for being a great founder. One of them is um, innovating in 
a relevant new social technology. When it comes to social technologies, it can be quite difficult to really figure out what works or what doesn't in the short run. Um, however, anything that sort of is, is kind of unique and really manages to work tends to work fairly quickly. We have many examples of these historical movements that over the course of a few decades completely transform society, say the spread of Christianity in the late Roman Empire, or uh, to pick a more controversial example, uh, the success of early 20th century uh, you know, uh, Marxist-inspired revolutionaries. Whatever one thinks, say, of you know, Marxist-Leninist revolutionaries, in the early half of the 20th century, they were extremely adept at carrying out revolutions, the sort of Leninist vanguard party theory, though, you know, today, obviously, we wouldn't think of that as the start of a civilization. Why? Because, well, in 1991, we saw the collapse of the Soviet Union. If you checked encyclopedias in, uh, what was it, I think 1973, I, I think it might even have been uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica, um, you would have a list of the 10 most impactful people in the world, you know, in human history, all of human history. And the list was Jesus. No, actually, it was Muhammad, Jesus, and Karl Marx. <laughs> I guarantee you that if we were writing that article today, we wouldn't list Karl Marx. Why? Because it was not the beginning of a thousand year uh, sort of tradition of statehood or social philosophy. It was not something comparable to Confucianism or even something comparable uh, to some of the other profound social philosophies that shaped the world and religions. But in 1973, that certainly seemed plausible. So my answer would be to your question of can we tell if you know someone is going to be a great founder? I think first we have to you know see whether they're engaged in a certain type of social innovation or renewal. Are they uh, creating institutions? Do they have direct disciples, people who have worked with them, studied with them, learned from them, that view themselves as carrying on their tradition? And finally, you know, are they a live player? And if the answer to all four of those is yes, the odds are still low, but they're not that low. They're something like, you know, 5, 5% maybe, 10% maybe. Um, you know, I think that there have been probably a few thousand and most people who through all of human history, through all of its civilizations, I would sort of class as a great founder. But these four criteria are met far less frequently than uh, people might assume. Yeah, so uh, I think that leads into my next question pretty well, which is uh, the other idea that you've known, known for, the, the live player, dead player, or live player, non, you know, uh, NPC. Uh, it's not exactly your term terminology, but... <laughs> it's not quite my term, but it's, it's very evocative, right? It's a, yes, right, it's right. a very relatable way to rephrase it. Well, you know, I had this um, essay a few years ago that's uh, become quite popular since titled Live versus Dead Players. And in it, I noted that, you know, for all of the sort of exquisite expertise, knowledge, formidable tactics that some of the most competent people in the world display... Almost all of them are working off of someone else's playbook, off of someone else's script. Now, the script, you know, might have been contributed to by many, many people, 
Um, but, you know, the moves they take, what they do, it's just a well-executed rendering of something that's already been done. Unusually, though, you sometimes find people who seem to be able to do things anew, who seem to be able to sometimes even jump expertise. You have these really strange, really strange careers of some individuals where they're going to be world-class performing, not in one domain, but in two or three domains. Um, you know, to give a funny example, right? Someone who I don't think is a great founder, but I think is a very accomplished man. You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, first was sort of a bodybuilding champion. Uh, then he, uh, you know, became an actor and then he became a politician. And at each point, people scoffed why someone from the previous group would ever imagine that they would do well, right? Uh, you know, when he was, when he uh, first, you know, starred in blockbusting blockbuster movies, people are just like, yeah, this is just a bodybuilder. He doesn't know how to act. By the time he became governor of California, people, of course, said he's just an actor. He doesn't know how to be, you know, a governor or a politician. So I guess, you know, winning at politics uh, forced critics to go, uh, you know, back to calling him, forced critics to acknowledge that he had been a successful actor before. Yeah. They um, should have learned. Uh, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you, but you, no, you think they would have learned the, the the lesson about the connection between acting and politics by that by then, but but uh, no, they ahead. hadn't. Yeah. They somehow hadn't, right? Despite the uh, successful example of Ronald Reagan, right, the most successful American politician of the 1980s. Um, today, of course, it's it's an observation that's almost boring. Though I'm going to note today, you actually have very few actors who succeed super well in politics. It seems that they just mostly choose to stay actors. Yeah, the only, I mean, I guess uh, the most recent contemporary example would be someone like Zelensky. Um, who yes, President Zelensky of Ukraine. Yeah. Um, and, you know, perhaps that's one of the reasons that Ukraine has overperformed what was expected of Ukraine. People were seriously considering that Zelensky might just flee the country in the first 48 hours of the war uh, I think perhaps over-learning, uh, over-inferring from the example of Afghanistan, right? In the Afghanistan example, uh, the government did flee fairly quickly uh, after U.S. withdrawal and after sort of the Taliban started making significant advances on the capital. Yeah, yeah. So well, Zelensky's uh, adaptability, right? His adaptability and resourcefulness perhaps was on display. And uh, because of that, he might have had the confidence to, you know, deal with something that for a Ukrainian politician was unprecedented. There had never been an invasion of this scale in a the post-Soviet environment. So if you were a typical Eastern European politician, you probably, you certainly would have felt overwhelmed. So one characteristic, uh, so live player, they they don't just operate according to to scripts. They're able to move in ways that seem kind of uh, you know uh, unpredictable and even baffling to people you know who are used to following scripts. Uh, and I guess they also potentially that helps them you know succeed in in multiple different domains because they can do it over and over again. Um, is that is that it's basically basically the idea? 
Well, there's very little variance in what they do. They do what they do very well. If you want to think about it, it's sort of the difference perhaps between, um, you know, um, a, a, a composer and a rote performer, or perhaps the difference between an inspired, an inspired uh, performer, musician, and someone that just does execute the standard thing very competently. I think a, a live player essentially is someone that's not working off a script. Now, so why do I call it a live player versus a dead player? Well, you know, for a dead player, uh, you can read their book. You know exactly what they're going to do. Uh, at a very significant level of competition, they just will reliably be radically outcompeted by live players. And for whatever reason, this distribution seems fairly binary, and it doesn't quite track intelligence, right? So you can have a very intelligent uh, individual, and they're a dead player, or you can have an organization that is an extremely powerful, wealthy organization, but is a dead player and can't adapt to the emergence of a new competitor, right? The whole Silicon Valley concept of disruption is that a small, nimble team will run circles around an old incumbent tech giant and eventually replace them. Uh, you know, today, of course, the last round of startups have themselves become tech giants. But when companies like Google, Facebook, and so on, when they were getting started, uh, they were dealing with these giants of the previous generation, right? Microsoft, and even before that, companies like IBM and so on. I... Uh, I hesitate to use this terminology because there, it has a lot of modern connotations that make it uh, easy to misunderstand, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, so the, the ancients, uh, you know, they said that there were basically three forms of government. It's monarchy rule by uh, one person, you know, oligarchy rule by a few or an elite, and then democracy rule by the many. And... One, you know, as I was thinking about uh, some of, you know, the live player, dead player, uh, and then even a little bit great founders, it sort of struck me that um, live players uh, tend to be, you know, individuals uh, or have like a monarchical aspect, not necessarily kings, but people who are, you know, uh, individual decision makers, right, in whatever their institutional organization is. And then um, the uh, dead players or other institutions that are going by rote, they seem to be much more, uh, you know, uh, bureaucratic. And uh, while sometimes while you can't have like a single individual in charge, it seems like there's much is more likely um, to happen if you had like an established institution that uh, where no single person was in charge is more oligarchical. Um, would you say that that's, that's accurate? Can you have live player oligarchies or, or groups, you know, that are beyond not like five people or whatever, but like an actual institution? Well, um, I would usually say that, and, you know, I kind of stand by this uh, for a large organization to be a live player, right. To display these, this kind of adaptability, I think that that has to be that has to be the product of a relatively small group of people working together. Yeah, I've noticed in organizations, even uh, even the difference between, say, a dozen people and thirty people um, 
in terms of, you know, just, just the basic, like with it, with a dozen people, sometimes you'll have an organization that is very vibrant and dynamic and, um, you know, uh, uh, very adaptable or whatever. And then even when you get up to like 30 people that starts to become somehow unworkable and like, you know, bureaucratic norms and others just start to, to come into, to play really quick. Um, so, so I guess, I mean, size, obviously you could have a really large organization that's just, that's just run by where like you have a single guy at the top or a couple people at the top, but, um, um, uh, anything more than that, I, I think it would, it's, you know, maybe there's something about the structure of it that it, you just can't, you can't do that, you know, with like a hive mind, I guess that wasn't exactly a question, but I don't, I don't know if you, <clears throat> no, no, it's good. It's good to, it's good to engage and interrogate these ideas, um, like deeply. I think that there are fundamental constraints on coordination between people. Look, the more stakeholders you have, the harder it is to reach consensus, right? You can maybe reach consensus on a course of action with one person, maybe again with five people. With 10 people, I guarantee someone, you know, if a consensus is seemingly reached, uh, someone's already biting their tongue. Someone's already going along, right? So with 10 people, I don't think you can actually achieve genuine consensus anymore. And even for something like a majority decision, uh, you know, the, the larger the group of people you bring the decision in front of, well, the longer the debate around the decision is likely to take, the longer it will take for people, uh, you know, to sort of stop exchanging, uh, to sort of reach that decision. It's necessarily a much slower system. Not everyone's even going to be interested in all of the decisions that would have to be made for such a large group of people, right? If, uh, you know, I'm making the decisions for my own life, I'm intimately familiar with that. If I make decisions for uh, a thousand people, I'm much less familiar with what their lives are like. And, uh, you know, tasked with considering questions that impact millions and millions of people it just starts to get this overwhelming mass of information, this overwhelming quantity, sheer quantity of decisions, right? Um, and then necessarily these, these decisions have to be delegated away from the larger group to subgroups. Why do I, why, why do I talk about this? Well, it's um, a very common assumption that sort of in the absence of structures, in the absence of these societal organizations, maybe in a state of sort of perfect uh, freedom, people could just, you know, collectively always make decisions by consensus, that there could be this sort of idealized utopian way uh, in which organizations can function. And for the most part, that seems to not be true. And for the most part, what we're stuck with is uh, picking between different forms of hierarchy, different methods of delegation, uh, different balances of power, right? Because again, there isn't always the possibility of escalation, um, be it in a modern organizational context, you know, maybe legal escalation uh, in the, you know, Bronze Age, uh, in the Bronze Age uh, context, possibly the battle axe, right? These are all, these are all very real factors that then feed back into what are stable, effective or even viable, right? Merely can be brought into existence forms of social organization. 
Okay, so uh, we've been talking at a very abstract level. I think it would be good to maybe bring it down a little bit, uh, talk about some examples, and apply what we, you know, these principles there. So, uh, and I, I, I have a couple things that have been, you know, in in recent news of various degrees of importance. But Elon Musk, right? So we, we're talking about. I, I believe you've identified Elon Musk as like a live player. He's currently involved in an attempt to buy Twitter, take it private, um, which seems to, you know, instantiate some of these, some of these dynamics that you're talking about, like what, what, you, like, what, what would your basic analysis be of Musk and how he relate, you know, Twitter, how, how they relate to all this? Well, I think if Musk succeeds in a hostile takeover of Twitter, this will be an important precedent for how modern American corporate governance works. The reason is today it usually is the case that uh, you know a software giant starts with a founder. The founder hires people who hires people who hire people who hire people, and eventually the founder sort of loses control of the company. And then it's at best governed by corporate best practices. Uh, it sort of becomes slowly enmeshed with government. And on the other hand, you know it's it's it sort of perhaps becomes more responsible, more responsive, less disruptive. And probably, you know, that's good once you start talking about companies that are a hundred or, or $200 billion or $300 billion. However, if Musk takes over Twitter, I think he's sort of, you know, he's sort of crazy enough to actually cut the fat. I think we might actually see a very different Twitter. And I honestly find the prospect exciting. I find it an exciting uh, experiment to run because we actually don't know what's going to happen since, and this is not going to surprise you, I think Elon Musk is a live player, someone that takes unpredictable moves, that sort of knows how to you know, th- think about his environment, navigate it. He also has shown uh, an ability and an awareness of basically large societal trends that he can hop or make use, hop between or make use of. Uh, so I think he might be one of the few people that could navigate Twitter into becoming something radically different than it is right now. I don't think it's going to be his main focus, though. So if I were to make sort of like a very tentative prediction, because he's already stretched so thin with several other companies, and to be fair, in some of these companies, he's uh, done remarkable delegation, right, where he has truly excellent people doing the day-to-day work, I expect he might thin the number of employees at Twitter significantly, uh, bringing a few more people, and then just set very different standards for Twitter. And this might bring Twitter onto a collision course with government. I think it's not just Twitter on its own making some of these relevant decisions. I think Twitter has had a very productive partnership um, with various uh, political organizations in the United States, but just also directly with the U.S. government. We even know this from the leaked uh, Snowden emails back in the day that Twitter was essentially coordinating with the U.S. State Department for how it can best assist uh, regime change during the Arab Spring. I see no reason for that type of collaboration to have stopped. I only know that, uh, you know, the... Um, Actually, I think I think it went out the Snowden emails, the the Assange emails. I misspoke. It's been a few years. Yeah, well, there was. Um, yeah, well, Julian Julian Assange is in. 
yeah, in, yeah. in prison now, we assume. So no more Assange emails, but just because <laughs> there are no emails, we shouldn't we shouldn't expect that uh, this sort of coordination between some of the biggest organizations in society has stopped. Yeah, I, I think that there 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 was uh, some stuff in the Snowden uh, uh, documents about uh, about Twitter, but that was more. Well. About, yeah, that was about you know the spot uh, surveillance stuff. Yeah, domestic surveillance. Yeah, um, yeah, it is it is kind of uh, odd to contemplate that the you know the same the same person is. Uh, uh, you know, in in charge uh, or founded the uh, most successful electric vehicle company, most successful private space flight company. Uh, you know, had had the whole uh, role in the in the PayPal thing, and now might also do Twitter as well. I don't know when he uh, when he sleeps, but um, what? Um, uh, so another. All right. So uh, if you have more comments on this uh, you can but i was gonna i was gonna pivot to um another person uh who has been in the news i don't know i actually don't know exactly how you would classify uh him but i I, i'm talking about vladimir putin obviously Mm -hmm. um uh you know recent events like have taken us to a place that uh a few years possibly even a few months ago i think the the general attitude was uh you know like large scale land wars are kind of a you know old 20th century thing they're they're extinct at least certainly if we're talking about in europe other things like that um i mean what did what's your i know you've written a lot about uh russia you know developments and like modernizations in the russian military and strategy other things like that but what what is What's your analysis of of uh, you know Putin and and what he's what he's thinking in terms of the invasion, uh, other stuff like that? Well, I think that what we are seeing is a continuation of um, frozen conflicts on freezing. I think the fact that we had not had major wars in Europe for such a long time was first a result of this, uh, you know, well, quite literally frozen conflict, this Cold War uh, between the Soviet Union and the United States, followed after 1991 by U.S. hegemony. As the United States, in some ways, in some parts of the world, weakens, such as was the case in Afghanistan, where after the withdrawal, the Afghani government collapsed very quickly, um, there are powers that have a revisionist approach where they sort of want to reassert their old existing spheres of influence. For Russia itself, it's sort of been Putin's mission uh, to stop its decline as a political world power. And if your perspective then is that you're you know, uh, seeking to maintain Russia's power in the world, then it's obvious that Ukrainian membership in NATO is simply unacceptable. This would make uh, this would make it so that uh, a hypersonic missile could fly from Ukraine to Moscow in a matter of minutes, hitting the capital and possibly even carrying a nuclear payload. The balance of power doesn't actually have to be exercised in order to shape the world. The entire Cold War was everyone tiptoeing around two absolutely massive nuclear arsenals and never actually blowing these arsenals up. 
since this is, you know, since this, I think, has been sort of forgotten after 1991, you know, Russia lost most of the aspects of empire, most of the aspects of being sort of this uh, superpower, but it did keep its nuclear arsenal. And there's been sort of a prioritization to keep that. Further, then there's the historic experience of uh, Russia being in this very vulnerable geographic area, which has conversely driven sort of Russian imperialism and expansion and conquest of neighboring territories, be they in Central Asia, be it, uh, you know, near the Baltic Sea, um, Poland, various places like this, in search essentially of geographical anchors, right? Natural barriers like the Carpathian Mountains, for example, or the Caspian Sea, or the Arctic Sea, natural barriers to invasion to make it much easier to um, to make it much easier to defend the vast territory, right? Catherine the Great, there was a saying attributed to Catherine the Great that my boundary, my borders are so vast that the only way I can think of to defend them is to expand them, right? It's uh, it's very much indefensible in a very real way. And perhaps, you know, maybe depending on how one thinks of imperialism in its own way, but the United States uh, in its own history, I think, you know, practiced manifest destiny and expanded westward until it hit a natural barrier, right? The Pacific Ocean. And, you know, once you're anchored on geographic barriers, then this sort of um, security argument for imperialism kind of goes away. Putin ultimately might have miscalculated in underestimating the strength of Ukraine and the developments in Ukraine since 2014. 2014 is when sort of the first Russian intervention happened and they successfully annexed Crimea, which, you know, has to be admitted was, you know, sort of a a victory for Russia in terms of power, right? It was the annexation of Crimea that allowed them to exercise naval supremacy in the Black Sea in sort of the first few weeks of this uh, 2022 war. But in the aftermath of this, uh, Ukraine has focused on the training their troops, on arming them, on developing strong ties to the Western world. The Western world is very interested in supporting Ukraine uh, and is now sending significant arms shipments, uh, significant financial aid. Um, And it seems that this was put to good use. So eight years later, Ukraine has possibly become a true uh, nation state with a relatively strong army. However, on the other hand, I do think that Vladimir Putin has been very agile at reforming Russian institutions. I note that he has changed the commanders of Russian forces in recent weeks. I would not at all be surprised if this ends up being a learning experience for the Russian military, where something that looked excellent on paper is sort of um, debugged, ironed out, put into practice, prototyped. You know, if um, Russia wins this war through the course of the next year, the next two or three years, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think they're going to allow an independent Ukraine. I think they're going to try to merge it in some way into some entity centered on Russia. Maybe it'll be called, maybe it'll be the Eurasian Union. Maybe it'll be the so-called Union State that already exists in on paper between Belarus and Russia. 
or maybe it'll be a completely new entity. But the goal, regardless, will be sort of to reform this Russian state. And sort of the bad news for Russia's neighbors is that uh, the Russian military will likely be much more effective in a future war. And if I were to speculate, you know, I think in the long run, say Kazakhstan certainly must perceive the Russian war with mixed feelings. Uh, the current president was basically kept in power just a few months ago um, by Russian troops entering the country and bolstering his government. So in a way, he owes Putin a favor. But on the other hand, he must understand that some of the same geopolitical arguments that have driven Putin to in the name of sort of national greatness and national security uh, invade Ukraine, some of these same arguments could potentially apply to Kazakhstan. And military force might be used to make sure to make it so that Kazakhstan has sort of less autonomy than it once had. Yeah, and uh, I, it, they do not seem like they, I mean, I, who knows? Um, but uh, I don't know that the, they have their own uh, Zelensky or their own uh, certainly weapons uh, pipeline, other support like uh, Ukraine has gotten. So um, that would be an interesting, interesting scenario. Um, I did have uh, one thing that kind of occurred to me earlier. Uh, I wanted to ask you about, and then if you don't really have any formed thoughts on it, I can always cut it. But uh, you know, thinking about, so you, you talked about, you got interested in like, um, grand sweep of history, studying about that. And there have been a, you know, history, you know, there's been a lot of, uh, you know, progress or development, but there've been at least two instances of kind of long-term collapse, dark ages, how you analyze them, how they come about, you know, what, if anything, looking forward, what what lessons or other things from the previous collapses might be applicable to today? Right, I'm not I'm not asking like should I be buying gold or whatever, but you know, from <laughs> a like, scholarly civilizational point of view. Well, civilizational collapse is sort of, um, as far as I can tell, almost an inevitable feature of civilizations. I don't think there's ever been you know an, an immortal human civilization. They all seem to have had this run and eventually are destroyed by a variety of factors. Um, we could talk a little bit about why this happens, right? Like with the Bronze Age collapse, the fall of the Roman Empire, the end of the uh, civilization in India associated with the Mohenjo-Daro sites, the collapse of uh, Han Dynasty China, and so on and so on. But really, you know, sort of uh, from almost individual perspective, the best one can expect sort of is um, the best one can expect and one one should try to do is to sort of invest in some of the frontiers of society that continue to grow through a collapse, right? And yes, when a society when a society is undergoing convulsion, there seem to be very few opportunities. But sometimes at the very periphery of a civilization, either, you know, geographic or mimetic, new things happen. Previously, you know, previously we were discussing, we were discussing uh, the monastic traditions and the introduction of monasteries. Well, in the Roman context, at least, monasteries were an adaptation to a civil society and public life 
that was becoming more and more chaotic and dangerous, combined with a rural life that was just as dangerous because of the uh, migrating peoples, the Germanic peoples and you know, so-called barbarians like the Huns and so on, and people who wanted to sort of practice this Christian faith and take refuge from the world would gather together in these monasteries that ended up becoming these very interesting new institutions that turned out to be uh, intellectually and economically very important for the next thousand years. So it might not have seemed like an amazing opportunity, but I think that if civilization or society around you seems to be in decay, seems to be sort of risk of some kind of collapse, you know, depending on your political spectrum, you know, either, you know, either, uh, you know, driven out of kind of institutional decay or perhaps driven by something like cl the climate crisis, the best thing you can do probably is sort of invest in any new developments that might be happening despite this sort of new modes of social organization, things that owe nothing to the previous system, but might endure into the next one. Okay. If people want to learn more, they can go to your website. You have a sub stack. If they want to sign up for, you have a, a newsletter, I think it's the Bismarck Brief. Uh, where, where can they go to sign up for that? Right, right. If um, you know anyone in the audience would like to sign up to uh, the Bismarck Brief, it's a weekly in-depth investigation of you know either a country, an organization, or an industry. We say did a brief on the future of the photovoltaics industry. We did a brief on sort of the uh, political, the struggle for political supremacy in the Mediterranean between France and Turkey. We also did a brief on the likely future evolution of drones and warfare and so on and so on. Uh, the newsletter can be found at brief.bismarckanalysis.com. Uh, the back end is Substack. So if you have uh, you know, if your information's in in Substack, it should, it's fairly easy to subscribe with one click. Um, and if you want to read some of my more general writing, including that on civilization and its history, uh, you can go find me on Twitter, uh, at Samo Uriya, or uh, go visit my website that has a list of all of my articles, samoburia.com. Okay, our guest today has been uh, Samo Uriya. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me.